And so from my perspective, the way I look at my business, but also the way that I look at leadership is if I can help CEOs, executive directors, managing partners, uh, owner operators, whatever that happens to be, if I can help that person to be ridiculously vibrant, then their leadership team is going to be vibrant as well. And then their leadership team will, with that new vibrance, will then spill into the whole company or the whole nonprofit or the whole organization. And then that vibrance will then pour into their clients and into their families and into the community. And so that's that's a big part of my pa my passion is, yes, I can teach leadership in general. There's lots of organizations that do leadership in general. My passion is that CEO, mm -hmm. is that most senior executive and helping that person to be ridiculously effective. Welcome back to the Pay It Forward podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Austin Seward, along with my co-host, Keegan Walls. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down with Brent Hayfley. Uh, Brent is the president and executive coach at his business, Vibrancy Unlocked, mm -hmm. which does uh, coaching for executives, CEOs, and works with people all across the country. So Brent has served in the either number one or number two role in companies throughout his entire career, has a ton of valuable insights to share with us here today. So really excited to have you part of the podcast. Brent. Thank you. This yeah. is going to be fun. Absolutely. Well, share with us Vibrancy Unlocked. What What is it? How did you come up with the name? Yeah. Um, who do you work with? Tell us about it. Well, the word vibrancy has been part of my, uh, it's been part of my story and part of my life for better part of 15 years. I was in St. Louis at a conference and this guy comes up to me, his name was Mike, and he says, I need your help. And this was, I was running my own uh, consulting firm at the time. And he says, I need your help. I said, okay, what do you need help with? And I shared a list of my products. And each time I'd say our services, he'd say, do you need help with this? He said, no, do you need help with this? No. And, he, and I just said, I'm confused, Mike. What is it that you need? We just aren't growing. And I said, I, I, I know what you need. He says, well, what is it? I said, you need a vibrancy plan. And he says, that is exactly what I need. What is it? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a night. I'll come back with you. And so the next day we, we talked and we connected and I had a whole vibrancy plan for him. And, and that was really the, the start of that word vibrancy that has really been part of my life for a while. That became part of my mission statement. And my personal mission statement is unlock the God-given potential of leaders so that they and their followers will live a more vibrant, loving, and impactful life. Mm -hmm. And in that, I have the word vibrant and I have the other word unlocked. I just happen to put them in the other order. And that's ultimately what I want for my clients and those that I'm working with. I really want to unlock that vibrancy and just see where they go and cheer them on and celebrate. Awesome. And how long have you been doing this? Well, I have the business is about a year old. Okay. And so I started the business last uh, last fall and uh, it, it really has been germinating for my whole career. And uh, I've been a consultant for the last 15 years. I started working as a coach about four years ago, right before the pandemic, I started working as a coach. And what I realized is, wait a second, there's this thing called coaching. I... I've been doing that my whole consulting career and I didn't know it. And so while I have technically four years of coaching experience and my business is one year old, I feel like I've been a coach for like 15 years because of the way that I have done consulting in the past. Very cool. And do you have a, a niche of niche industry that you work with or a type of what's your, who's your ideal client? Uh, my ideal client is uh, either a business or nonprofit, and I've worked in both sectors for my whole career. And uh, so either a business or a nonprofit. And, and typically it's a business that has at least 10 employees. And uh, but but I've worked with as big as a thousand employees in like multiple states and regional or, you know, other 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 swoops like that. And so um, the, the key is they need to have a certain level of complexity. That's, that's what I'm excited about. And after you get about 10 employees, you've got enough personalities, you've got enough issues yeah. that, that a coach makes some sense. Yeah. Awesome. So how about you go back a little bit? You've talked about like your career. What ultimately led you into this? You said you were coaching for four years. You started your business for a year. But you 
been the CEO, the top one sure. or two your whole career. So yep. go back and explain just a little bit of like your journey leading up to this and some of the things that maybe you learned in those roles yep. that have benefited you now in the the business that you started. So the the seed, if we want to go way back, the seed that was planted about leadership, and I, I've been passionate about leadership for 30 years now, um, but the seed that that really was planted was I was at I was in the Disney co college program, so I went down to Walt Disney World. I worked in an internship at, uh, at at the Disney Institute, and when I was there, I was doing food and beverage, nothing fancy, not nothing exciting. But the Disney Institute is the place where Fortune 500 executives go to learn how to do Disney and mm. do the magic that Disney does, whether it comes to creativity, the way they work with leadership, people, teamwork, innovation, all those things. And I got to, yes, I was, you know, carting in Coca-Colas and I was working with, you know, bringing in meals and refreshing their waters and stuff like that. But I was in that environment and I was like, whoa, there's these people that do this. This is amazing. I want to do that. And and so uh, I went back to school at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Uh, I'm a blue gold and uh, got done, uh, got back to uh, got back to Eau Claire and I changed my major right away organizational communication with a minor in leadership development. This is what I want to do. This is so cool. And then I graduated during the dot-com bust, 2002. And that, that was when people thought that, oh, dogs.com was going to be the biggest thing ever. And and all this real estate was being bought up in URLs. And it, well, people realized, well, I can write other URLs. And dogs.com really didn't sell like they thought it was going to. So the we got into a recession and not only were people not hiring folks with my degree, they're firing everyone with my degree. And so it was hypersaturated. Mm. I had no place to go. Um, and, and I ended up at working, ironically, at a homeless shelter, uh, Hope Gospel Mission in Eau Claire. And uh, the position was for a volunteer slash development coordinator. And in my ignorance, I thought, huh, I can work with volunteers and I can see how homeless people need development. What I didn't know is that development in the nonprofit sector is code for fundraising. Okay. And so in the interview process, I told them what they wanted to hear. They told me what I wanted to hear. And they said, congratulations, here's your job. Oh, by the way, you need to raise a quarter million dollars by the end of the year. Hmm. That was my introduction to development in the fundraising world. And I took a 20-year detour through the nonprofit sector and 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 that was that was just pivotal to growing and learning is working in and around the nonprofit sector over that 20 years. Hmm. And do you stay working with that organization for that entire time or do you jump from different no, nonprofits? I, I worked at um, I worked at Hope Gospel Mission for about four and a half years. And then I worked my way into the, the stewardship director. Uh, one of those pivotal moments, and this was just a huge lesson. One day I walked into my boss's office and I said, my title is volunteer slash development coordinator, and I'm supposed to raise money from these people. No one wants to talk to the coordinator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No one wants to talk to the coordinator. Could I change the title just on the business card? You don't need to change the job description. You don't. I would like you to pay me more, but you don't need to pay <laughs> me more. Could I change it to stewardship director? Hmm. It's just it's just on the business card. Nothing big deal. And 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 he said yes, and we changed the business card, and it was that day. I mean that that made a huge change in the trajectory of my career mm. because at 23 years old folks are you know we're in a room and I'm, I'm the second person with director in his title in the organization and we'd have a meeting we only got eight nine people working there and if the executive director wasn't in the room they'd say well what do you think well you're the director mm. i'm like no 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 it's just the business card well what what and at some point i had to just be the title that was put on me and, and that was a pivotal leadership moment for me. Mm. So I left Hope Gospel Mission, uh, became executive director of the Chippewa Valley Free Clinic, and was the first executive director there. They'd been operating for 12 years, but they hadn't had a CEO-type role. Ran that uh, for about four or five years. We expanded programs, uh, expanded uh, impact, um, improved the quality of programs there. And then from there, went on to starting my consulting practice, New Day Nonprofit Solutions. And and that's really where that coaching seed started because my son was born 
My wife looks at our first child and says, I can't go back to work. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble because she was making 60% of our income and 100% of our benefits. Mm. So it was in that moment where I started this business thinking, I'm 29 years old. Who's going to hire a 29-year-old consultant? I'll make a little bit of money on the side and it'll take the edge off. And that wasn't God's plan. I ended up making more money working part-time in consulting than I did working full-time at the free clinic. And so the next year I left the free clinic and went into that business. But um, as a consultant, I needed to coach uh, my clients because 29 years old, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I ended up using coaching tools and questions and lots of other things to kind of find the answer instead of know the answer. Mm. And that was, that was a core part of that. Um, just to get to where we are now, I uh, ran my company for seven years, sold it to a national consulting firm, Dickerson Baker and Associates. Uh, they're a multi-million dollar organization with lots of consultants in it. I started as a vice president and I worked my way up to senior vice president of talent development where I led the consulting team. Mm-hmm. And that's the core service of the organization. So it was really, that was just probably my ideal job. It was so fun. I really liked that element of leading and growing those leaders. And that's when I found, uh, that's when I started working with coaching and getting certified in coaching. And all of a sudden I was like, that's all I want to do the rest of my career. Hmm. So you, so you mentioned coaching, you mentioned consulting business. <clears throat> a lot of people see those as like the same thing. Yeah, right? absolutely. So very common. Are they similar? Are they different? How are they similar and different? They have, they definitely have similarities. They both are trying to go towards a certain um, ends. They're both facilitators of growth or facilitators of uh, progress of some sort, but they go about it differently philosophically. So a consultant comes in as the expert and you typically are hiring that consultant to solve your problem. And so they, you hire the consultant to, um, and the consultant will often diagnose the problem will then make recommendations and sometimes will even solve the problem for the client. A coach looks at it differently. The coach comes in and says, you as my client, you are the expert. And my job as the coach is to draw that expertise out. And so I have coached clients like the Pittsburgh Zoo, having never worked with a zoo before and leaving that experience successfully or going over to Africa and working with um, leaders in Africa, not knowing anything about the African context and being successful there. Or a fo- you know, I worked with the Olive Crest, the largest foster care organization in the state of California. Not really knowing much about, about the foster care system or that, but being able to ask key questions that draw out their expertise. Mm. And that's, that's a core element. That's a core difference. The other thing is, is consultants give a lot of advice. I often will subordinate my perspective and and hold that back. Sometimes I will give advice or sometimes I'll add, but it's always with permission. Would you like me to share an insight? Would you like me to ask you or I have I have an idea or I've done this before. Would you like my advice or would you like me to ask you another question? And again, coaching is very client directed. Consulting is more often consultant directed. Hmm. So with your current coaching have you found like a common thread of like this one thing, right? Sometimes I think they that businesses can look and go, oh, we have all these problems, we need a coach. But have you found like this common thread of like, this is ultimately like what people are, are needing or missing? I mean, what what would that be? Yes, I have. And, and I've worked with over my consulting career and over my total career, I actually went through and I calculated how many executives, senior executives, CEOs have I worked with? I've worked with over 175 in my career. Wow. <clears throat> and in looking at all those, one of the things that I noticed is that the bottleneck is always at the top. And so if you look at a bottle and the bottle is sitting, where is the bottleneck? It's at the top. And often the limiting factor is what John Maxwell calls the law of the lid. It is the CEO. That's the limitation. Mm. And so there, there, it could be the CEO's busyness. It could be the CEO's pride. It could be the CEO's um, assumptions about delegation or about their own value or what they're supposed to do or uh, any of those types of things, but often it is the CEO. And so from my perspective, the way I look at my business, but also the way that I look at leadership is if I can help CEOs, executive directors, managing partners, 
uh, owner operators, whatever that happens to be. If I can help that person to be ridiculously vibrant, to be healthy and to be uh, a good leader and to be humble and to be uh, productive in their work and generous, I can help that CEO to be vibrant, then their leadership team is going to be vibrant as well. And then their leadership team will, with that new vibrance will then spill into the whole company or the whole nonprofit or the whole organization. And then that vibrance will then pour into their clients and into their families and into the community. And so that's that's a big part of my, my passion is, yes, I can teach leadership in general. There's lots of organizations that do leadership in general. My passion is that CEO, mm-hmm. is that most senior executive and helping that person to be ridiculously effective. So if I hire, a, let's say, a sales coach in my business, it's pretty easy to see, am I selling more or am I selling yeah. less as a result of hiring that coach? How do you quantify and how do you quantify vibrancy and determine whether it's a success in them choosing to work with you or not? You can't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, there there are there are absolutely ways to to quantify and, and in metrics, especially in the business world, but also more and more in the nonprofit sector, metrics are valued, mm-hmm. and especially in the business sector, highly valued. And so there are ways to calculate return on investment, and and so as we're looking at things, some of it certainly there's some outside research that looks at this, like Gallup, for example. Um, teams that and leaders that live and operate in their strengths are three times more likely to report a high quality of life. They're six times more likely to be engaged in their work. Um, they um, uh, individuals are 7.8% more productive that are living in their strengths, and their 8.9 teams are 8.9% more productive when they're working in their strengths. And so, really looking at that and helping to optimize those teams and those people. Huge, huge rewards and benefits. But as far as metrics that that I'm working with CEOs, it depends on what the CEO's goal is. So in some cases, like right now, um, I'm working with, uh, I've offered to uh, various different clients, if I could help free up eight hours of your time a week, would that be helpful? And from that, over a 90-day period, we look and we say, okay, where can we find eight hours a week of your time that is not being used effectively or as effectively as it could be or as intentionally as it could be? And so maybe that intentionality is they're getting more sleep because I'm just working all the time and I'm tired and I'm, I'm just not functioning as well as I could be. And it's not unusual to work with a client and find out that they get more done working in 45 hours a week than they ever would working 60 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And so helping them to really qualify, improve the quality. And they will say, oh, yeah, I freed up more time. Or they will be able to say, I've had less meetings because death by meeting is really, really common in especially a CEO's life or an executive's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so measuring some of those. Also, though, if you look at long-term growth, uh, long-term, you will start to see growth in profit. You will start to see growth in employee engagement or in a reduction in employee turnover, which turnover is incredibly expensive in the business sector, uh, in any sector. Mm. And so um, as you're looking at your goals, you might say, all right, we got a goal. We've got a turnover problem. How do we deal with that? Okay, let's deal with that. Let's address that issue. Let's figure that out. And, and then you'll start seeing and you'll be able to measure that go down over time. And so there's, there's lots of ways to qu- uh, quantify that value. Great. So let's talk about leadership then. Obviously, yeah. working with CEOs, and you've said the word leadership a lot. Yep. When, when people say leadership, there's all different strategies of what really is a leader. People say, well, since I'm in charge, I have leadership skills. Sure. They don't. So what's your, what is your mentality or the way that you carry out or teach leadership? Sure. So a lot of what I do is look at, and, and as far as leadership is concerned, uh, yes, you're absolutely right, Keegan, that there are elements of lots of different definitions. Leadership is influence. Leadership is, is, is pouring into people and helping them to be more effective or be more productive or something on that idea. And so certainly there's a, those things. Uh, I really, I really emphasize uh, what my friend David Cook has taught me a lot. He's a leadership coach out in California, 
and uh, he talks about the leadership pyramid. And so there's there's um, self awareness, self leadership, leadership of others, leadership of teams, and then leadership of of organizations and leadership of movements. And so really, it really starts on that that basis of awareness and self um, and self leadership. And that's not a very sexy topic, uh, but it is absolutely transformative, crazy transformative, because more often than not, there are limiting factors within your own leadership and within my own leadership. And I'll give you an example. I was in a coaching conversation where I was the client and David was my coach. And David says to me at some point, I'm saying, okay, well, I could either do this or I could do this. I don't want to do this and I don't want to do this. And I just was stuck. And he says, wow, that sounds like a lot of black and white thinking. Where is the gray area? And that moment was, we started looking at this and all of a sudden we realized that there was a gradations there that we could, we could really do something with. And we found a solution that I wasn't thinking of because of that. And so I was my own limiting factor there. And so I, I remember I was working in Fort Wayne, Indiana uh, with, a, with a client of mine and um, working with a CEO of a multi-million dollar nonprofit um, in, in uh, Indiana. And, and I remember having uh, we, we parked, we were seated, or we were parked in the Marriott parking lot, and we were talking, and I don't know where I got this boldness, but it just it was just there. This was early on in my consulting world or cons- and, and, and the CEO and I are talking and he says, what's really, what do I need to do? What, what's the real problem? And I said, the real problem is you. <laughs> You've allowed this to happen. Don't you remember? You're the CEO. Mm-hmm. And in his case, he wanted to be nice. And he wanted to be popular and he wanted to be um, generous. But he was creating, a, he was allowing bad behaviors to happen. And it, good CEOs are not popular from the standpoint of um, everybody likes them. They're, they, they are the ones that have to make some of the tough decisions. And good CEOs will say, that kind of behavior isn't going to work here mm-hmm. and hold the standard. And when that standard is held, but if it's held in kindness, that can be transformative. But if the CEO is coming home or coming to work angry because there's stuff going on at home, or if there are challenges at work that are not growing because um, his or her ego is getting in the way of success and they're not letting the team succeed, that's a big deal. And uh, Dan Sullivan and uh, Benjamin Hardy wrote a book called Who Not How. Beautiful book, powerful book, highly recommend reading it. But for example, a lot of CEOs, they think, oh, I, I'm the expert at this. I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And, and really the core job of a CEO is to set the vision, to maintain the course and to pour into their people. If they do those three things, Everything else is just gravy. And so if they end up doing sales, which they should, CEOs should be part of sales. If they end up looking at the finances, which they should, it's part of that. Absolutely. But set the vision, stay the course, and, um, and, 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 and lead the team. If they're doing those three things, that's really what that most senior, that apex leader should be doing. And when they're not doing that, when they are more worried about sales or they're more worried about finance or they're more worried about whatever they're worried about and, and dinking around with or innovation or R&D or whatever that is, instead of empowering their best people to do their best work, that's where there's challenges. Hmm. So, so what's, a, what's a crazy or really cool testimony to your, your coaching business or some one, for instance, like transformative moment that happened with the company, right? You you met with the CEO. Mm-hmm. Are there any that stick out? I'll take you back to Fort Wayne. Yeah. Um, and I can share this story now. Confidentiality is important. Yeah. But I'll, I'll take you back to Fort Wayne. I was working with the Fort Wayne Rescue Mission, and um, the men's shelter and the women's shelter were in a conflict. 
And and there were people on the team that literally same job in two different departments had never had a conversation. That's how dysfunctional it was. Hmm. And so we worked with that um, and and helped draw out some solutions, develop some solutions, identify what's the core problem, what's the core challenge here, and we identified the challenge and were able to come up with some new solutions that. Um, I didn't know coming in what the solution was, but we identified some novel things that would work really well in that context. And so we adjusted the organizational chart. Uh, we built up the CEO's leadership, and he has had a, just a wonderful career and has done a lot of amazing work and, um, and really emerged as an organization that has been uh, growing by um, orders of magnitude, not just like a slow growth, but and they needed to be unlocked in order to get there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really fun. So you talk about how a good CEO is holding the standard, holding people accountable. Um, you're kind of the one that's holding them accountable in a way, but um, we just got done talking. You had gave a talk on friendship, mm -hmm. and I think of, I, I saw it on your website, of like oftentimes the CEO is like the most lonely person in Absolutely. the organization because they really don't have anybody to go to. So in working with those types of people, like what, what's your advice to somebody who is maybe at the top of their organization? They always feel like they're playing the bad guy and big bad wolf to their team. Like who do they go to to talk to? That's a great question. And number one, you don't want them to be playing the bad guy all the time. They also need to be a good guy and they need to look and, and, and know how to manage that and, and navigate some of those things. But um, you, you bring a really good point up because CEOs, it's not always appropriate to talk to your team. And so that can be awkward, uncomfortable, sometimes illegal. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, uh, you don't always want to go to your partners, the shareholders, the board, because you don't want to freak them out. And your friends don't get it. And your family's tired of listening. <laughs> and so it's yeah. what it's like, who do I talk to? And that loneliness just creeps in because you're just isolated. And so there's a couple things that I, I recommend in that and that we, we just did a I just did an hour long session on on deep friendships. And that's really intentionally pursuing friendships and identifying that and looking for that that type of friendship where the friend is not looking for anything but the friendship. And one of the things that makes CEOs lonely, in my opinion, my observation is that everybody always wants something from them. They want a promotion. They want favor. They want money. They want a sale. They want influence. They want a job. And so um, whatever it is, people are always wanting something from them. And and so to have that's different than wanting them. Mm -hmm. And so that's where seeking out whether it's another CEO that can be that kind of friend or whether that's somebody who's like in a totally different sector, has nothing to do with you, some friend at church or on the softball team or um, something else like that, whatever it is. But being intentional in that friendship is really important. And that brings up that vibrancy. I, I, I don't believe that we have a work life and we have a, a personal life and they are completely separate of each other. That used to be something that was common, uh, common thought of like, well, I keep work, work, and I keep life like... Number one, it's not happening anymore because our cell phones and our other things are constantly with us. Work is everywhere we go, and we don't set up clear boundaries like we used to. But second of all, um, it just doesn't exist. I don't, I don't think, you know, you have a fight with your spouse at home, and then you go to work. You're going to bring some of that ne negative energy into the mm -hmm. office. You have a bad day at work. You're going to bring some of that negative energy home. And so that's where you need to be healthy and vibrant in both places in order for a person to actually be whole and yeah. be as healthy and vibrant as they can be. Yeah. I can't, uh, when you were talking today, I just think of my good friend, Mike, who's been on the podcast. Um, one of my best friends, if not probably my best friend, but having that person as someone who is in a position of leadership, that's experienced a level of success at a younger age. I don't have a lot of friends that I can relate to and talking with that and, um, Mike and I are at very similar stages of business and having that person that's in a completely different industry, lives three hours away. But like when we talk about stuff that's going on in our businesses, it's the same thing. Like it's yep. all the same stuff. 
And having somebody to have those conversations with, uh, man, I can't stress the importance of that. So you resonate with that isolation? 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you when you said name five to 10 people, of like write a list of five to 10 friends. Well, I mean, I got a list of 100 friends, but mm-hmm. I got under five that are yep. legitimately deep friends. Yep. And uh, and we don't need more than, than you know, three, five deep yeah. friends. But when you look at your top 10 friends, really looking at that and saying, What's the quality and the nature of that relationship? Yeah. And as an executive, uh, I, I run my own company. I'm the executive of my own. I don't have time for shallow friendships. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. And so I have jettisoned a lot of friendships over the years, and I've just like walked away. And I've looked at those that I am um, uh, give and take relationships or give and take friendships. Those that I'm in deep friendship with, I'm holding on. I'm getting something from them, but I'm also giving something to them. Those are the types of relationships that I want to invest in. And and so unless there is a, a real purpose of it, there's not a lot of people that get one-on-one time with me um, that's not paying for it, yeah. <laughs> honestly, yeah. um, un- unless it is one of my closest friends and, and someone that we're doing life together. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that, that makes sense. I just read an article with my wife the other day where I was talking about that, the older you get, right? Like, man, when you're in your early 20s, it felt like, man, I got like 15 best friends. Yeah. The older you get, I think whatever study they did, it's like you can really like physically only have three to five yep. deep friends. You cannot, like you yep. literally don't have the capacity, the emotional capacity or the time capacity to, to have more but, than that. But see, it's not unusual. And I've worked with, I actually coach, this is so strange. We'll be in coaching, we'll be talking about their 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 business and that's where i'm not a business coach i am a coach to executives mm-hmm. or coach for executives you know i that's that's i'm not two two four I, i'm a coach for executives and so that that's a core element of it because um you can have lots of friends and be very shallow with lots of people but it doesn't fulfill that need uh and, and, and that that element of loneliness and isolation that CEOs can, especially CEOs, pastors, executive directors, others that are in that like most senior role, it's it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. And that's where having some of those close friends are really critical, but you have to be intentional about it. And that's a core element of of my practice and my practice philosophy is, is, is that um, intentionality. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how stuff at home obviously reflects stuff at work and vice mm-hmm. versa. Um, in regards to work-life balance, mm-hmm. is, is there such a thing of creating, even though some of those things that happen might overlay, obviously they overlay into your personal life and business life, but is there any science or do you give any recommendation of creating that balance or trying to be intentional about creating that balance in your life? I, I don't believe there's such a thing as let work-life balance um, because work-life balance assumes that it's naturally going to balance out. And when you think about what is the word balance, uh, it's like a it's like a scale with two sides. And so you put what you're weighing on one side, and you put the the um, control weight on the other side, and that creates the balance. And it will, no matter what it is, it will balance out whether it's oh this is lighter and this is heavier, or this is, it will automatically balance. I like actually life work order, and what that is is I'm going to that's more active. I'm going to order my work and my life. And there's times when I will say, all right, I'm going to put more into my work in this season than my than my personal life. But if you're always doing that, that's where the trouble is. Oh, we got another sprint. We've got another sprint. We've got another this. We've got another that. That's a huge problem because that's where, you know, huge amounts of stress and depression and anxiety and other other things start to happen. Um, that's where that's where heart attacks and strokes come late in late in life because you're not in that balance. Your body is saying, "This ain't working, folks." Mm-hmm. And so, part of working as a coach is helping them look at both the life and the work. And I have a um, I have a simple self assessment. Uh, I call the life work scale, uh, life work vibrancy scale. And there's seven life factors and seven work factors, and we really help look at those and well how are your relationships how is your personal finances how are these things how is the work what's the balance between those naturally as it is now what do you want the order to be and really looking at that in a more substitute way yeah that's great 
Um, so in a world that it, anybody can be a self-proclaimed coach, right? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You can go on, on TikTok and call yourself a coach and yep. start putting out some videos and create an online course. For somebody who is looking to hire a coach, what are some things that they should look at to do their due diligence and who they hire? Sure. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Anyone can call themselves a coach. Anyone can call themselves a consultant. Uh, any of those, some of those titles. Now, only certain people can call themselves a therapist because they're legally licensed yeah. or they're certified in that. And only certain people can call themselves a physician or a you know medical doctor because that is a licensed, that's a licensed thing. There's not a license or a, um, a registration for coaches and consultants in most states or most places. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. Yeah. So there are um, very select certifications, and there's some so there are good certifications out there. Um, the gold standard is from the International Coaching Federation. And so um, almost every program, like I'm a Gallup certified Clifton Strengths Coach, great program. Do great work. But where do you get, where do they, who endorses them and who gives them the credits that um, that are part of that program? The International Coaching Federation. So you go to do Gallup training and learning how to be a coach, but you're, at the end of the day, it's ICF that really is the standard. And so ICF coaches, they uh, there's a certain amount of hours, uh, hours of training that are necessary, so many hours of coaching and in a portion of those hours, 80% of the hours have to be paid hours of coaching. So to be at the first level, you need 100 hours of coaching. Uh, You need 10 hours of professional mentorship uh, where they actually observe you coaching and engage and then then help you learn how to be a better coach. Uh, You need to take the uh, coaching knowledge assessment, uh, which is a paper and pencil test. Well, I know it's on computers, but but it's it's a real test. That, that you take, you got three hours, sit down, do this, uh, no notes. So there's, there's different standards. And then in order to continue and maintain that certification, every three years, you are constantly adding it to your education and building in that sense and, and demonstrating that. Um, the second level of coaching, P, uh, PCC, Professional Certified Coach, those coaches have 500 hours of documented coaching time they have elevated, they've, they've submitted coaching samples and demonstrated that they meet certain criteria in the way that they're coaching. And then there's master certified coaches as well. Anyone that has the ICF certification, you know that they at least have the base level, that they're not just a fly-by-night type of thing because you're not, ICF is not going to allow that. Uh, and then as you grow up or as you go up that um, anyone with a PCC or above, you know that they are rock stars at what they do. And is that industry specific or is that amongst all business in general or if somebody wants I, to be certified? ICF will, co- will they, they certify the process of coaching. Okay. So you can be a health coach, you can be an executive coach, you can be a fitness coach, you can be a life coach, whatever it happens to be. Sales coach, as you mentioned before. Yeah. So, but when you use that word coach, if it is, if it is not, doesn't include a certification with ICF, Often, who knows what you're going to get? Yeah, and that's where it's really important. Tell me about your coaching philosophy. Yeah. How do you coach? Why do you coach? What does that mean to coach? How is it different from counseling and therapy? How is coaching different from consulting? All of those methodologies. Yeah, and I think I'm mean, just speaking from personal experience, looking for somebody that has a proven track record. Like yep. they, they absolutely did what you're looking for. They don't just yep preach it. They didn't just go get a certification and take a class and because they wanted to be an entrepreneur or be a coach, like they've done the work themselves yep. and developed as a leader themselves. That certainly um, adds to the richness of what they're able to bring as yeah, a coach. Totally. But there's an element within coaching where, um, you know, I, I work with ridiculously intelligent and talented people. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they don't need to have me share my opinion with them. They don't need me to tell them what to do. And frankly, if I did, they wouldn't listen anyway. Yeah. They're just the type of person that is like, go, or, you know, they, they don't, you don't end up um, getting to CEO when you're wishy-washy. Totally. <laughs> they, they know what they want. They're entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurial. They're, they're innovative. They are drivers. And so those types of personalities, consultants isn't always going to work with them anyway. And when I was a consultant, I would be really happy 
if my clients listen to, you know, if they if they follow through on 60 to 75% of what I recommended, I was thrilled. Yeah. Now as a coach, uh, I, I really, I'm not invested in, I'm invested in them. I'm not invested in the outcome. Hmm. So I am invested in them and they decide where the outcome is. And there's three pillars that I work with with my clients. One is confidentiality. Uh, so your story is not my story to tell. So any of the stories I tell, I have permission to tell them. Um, the second is, uh, is, is non-judgment. And that's a real critical one. So we're going to have conversations and it's going to be confidential and you are welcome to tell me anything. And I am going to reserve judgment. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to tell you you're this or this is wrong or this is that's that's for you to determine. And, and so while I certainly want to work with clients that are principled and have values, it's not my job to shame them. It's not my job to any of that. It's my job to lead them to the best decision for them. And I, I love that. And that's a really freeing philosophy. And then the third pillar is self, um, is client directedness. And so uh, where the client wants to go, they go. And I give my clients permission. Hey, if there's a question you don't want to answer, don't answer it. Just say, hey, I don't want to talk about this. Can we talk about that? Yeah, great. Hmm. I might say, what was behind the change there? Mm -hmm. What is it about here that's really exciting to you? And then dig into that. But I'm not, no, we have to answer this question. That's that's not the way that I work with my clients. I think entrepreneurs and leaders too, like if if you were to tell me I should be doing something, I'm probably less likely to take that advice. Whereas if you were of helped me find out for myself Correct. why I should be doing yep. that. And it, I, it's silly to say, but it's true. Like you tell me to do something, I've always rejected. That's why I didn't like school, yep. right? I'm like yep. a teacher telling me what to do and I have to do this and I have to operate within that box. Um, but now I, I pay for coaching. I pay for personal development. I read books. I didn't read books in school, but I'm doing it because I want to do it. And yes. I want to learn and yep. I want to grow. Not because somebody's telling me that I should do that. So- um, how do you how do you motivate your clients in that way? And it's almost an art of finding a way to motivate them without telling them exactly what they need to do. Correct. And I and I do want to share. My wife has a coach that says um, that that in, constantly encourages her clients. Um, don't shoot on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, don't shoot on yourself. So, um, it's not my job to motivate them. Hmm. That's not my job. That's not what I do. My job is to help them figure out how they motivate them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I will ask questions like, Keegan, why is this important to you? Why, why is this something? If, if you get to the other side of this and you succeed, what's going to be different? What's going what, to be better? What's going to be worse? If you don't do this, what, what are the consequences? Uh, there's a... Um, there's a, a tool called the Cantrell scale. And it's basically you, you think about a, a, a ladder in front of you. And when you're on the ground, it's zero. And when you get up on the top rung, it's 10. 10 is the best possibility. Zero is the worst possibility. What rung are you on now? I'm on a six. What would it take to get to a seven? What would life be like if you were on a seven, on rung seven versus six? What would work life be like? What would this be like? And so helping them to identify those things and think through that. And for a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, frankly, a lot of leaders, and, and we're just so crazy busy. We're going, 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 going. That time for reflection, time to slow down and think is not something that a lot of CEOs take time for. But what is it that you want your CEOs doing? I don't want my CEOs doing anything. I want them thinking. I want them leading. I want them inspiring. I want them holding people accountable. I don't want them doing anything. When I was the uh, executive director of the free clinic, I told my staff, the more that I do, the less that gets done. Because then that's where I become the bottleneck instead of allowing my whole team. And you asked earlier in this conversation about leadership. My whole philosophy of leadership is, helping everyone in the organization or everyone on your team to live out what they were created to do, helping them to be absolute rock stars at what they are best at. 
And when everyone on the team is a rock star at what they are personally best at, that's where the team is going to go huge places. So you mentioned taking time to think. What are some other practical things? Like somebody that's an entrepreneur listening to this, a business owner, a leader, I want to get better in my leadership. Sure. You mentioned that. What are some other practical things throughout your experience that you, maybe that even fly under the radar that people just don't think about that would impact people today that I can make a choice to say yes and be a better leader tomorrow if I do this? Absolutely. So, so some of that is, is what are your expectations? So an example is I worked with a CEO who um, was in that death by meeting concept and, and had um, direct reports coming into meetings and they'd be an hour long every week and asked the question, do you need to be in an hour long meeting with everyone? And he's like, well, yeah, that's, we're using the whole time. I'm like, okay, so how are you using the time? Well, we start with chit chat and we do that. And then we set the agenda and then we get into the details. And then it's like, wait a second here. Do you need to manage your, like, what would it look like if your meetings were half as long? What if you had meetings every other week instead of every week? What if you required um, or expected your uh, direct reports to come with an agenda in advance? What if you talk about your, and say, I value chit chat, I value relationship and connection, but that's not the purpose of the meeting. The purpose of the meeting is the purpose of the meeting. And then you, you identify chit-chat time or connection time in other opportunities. And maybe that's, you know, the old, you know, Hewlett Packard, 1970s leadership model of leadership while walking around. Maybe that's when the CEO goes for a walk and stops by um, the CFO's desk or the, you know, CHRO's desk or the, the, C, um, uh, the CMO's desk. And, well, how, how are you, their office, and connect with them. So really looking at that, and so the the tip is is look at your schedule really critically. What are you doing with your time? How is that time being used? That's a core a core element. Another thing is just what are you expecting of your team? When when they don't, uh, I just finished uh, American Icon, uh, which is a book about um, Alan Mulally, who helped with the turnaround at Boeing and then went to Ford Motor Company and helped with the turnaround of Ford Motor Company. And one of the things that Alan was, it strikes me, really kind man, really generous man, but at the same time, you weren't going to get away with garbage there. You weren't going to snow him. You weren't. He was like, he wanted honesty. And if he didn't get it, he'd call it out. Wait a second. How come your report doesn't have any red on it? There's no problems in your department. None? really? Then why is our bottom line the way it is? And Ford Motor Company was circling the drain, mm. you know? And so the first couple of meetings that, that Malali had, you know, every, every department head or every division head would bring their report and it was all greens and some yellows and no reds. And finally, wanna, you know, Alan would just call that out. Then why are we here? What's going on, folks? And so I, I think... Having a reality, having a reality checkpoint is, is another one of those things of, okay, if, if our results, if we're not satisfied with our, our results, that's because of our processes, our systems, our actions. And, and what's amazing is, is that our processes, our systems, our actions are perfectly suited to get the results that we're getting. So if we don't look at that, well, you know, the market, this, that, if we don't look at our system and say, how do we innovate? How do we change? Like if we're satisfied with our systems and processes, then we need to be satisfied with our results because more often than not, it's adjusting the trajectory of your systems and, 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 and calibrating and honing what the operations are and the systems behind it and the structure and the, that honing that and optimizing or maximizing those systems so that you can get different results and better results over time. And that's what Mullally did at Ford Motor Company and at Boeing. He just said, hey, we need to actually be really honest. We're going to be friends. We're going to be friendly. We're going to um, get along. But when we get into the meeting room, we're here to work. Yeah. And we're here for honesty. And it's like setting that standard and setting that expectation and, and frankly, leading 
um, with vulnerability, leading with intentionality, leading um, by example is is really critical in that process. I've uh, I've heard Elon Musk has a policy that if you are in a meeting and you don't find value in that meeting, you don't think you should be there, you can get up and leave. Mm-hmm. And I wish Austin would institute that. <laughs> That sounds like a great idea. Right, exactly. Uh, I, as I see it, as I understand it, Musk has, his companies are doing a little he's bit better than yours. So yeah, <laughs> he's doing okay. He's doing better than I mine, really, too. I really like that idea. Yeah. yeah. I that, mean, it's it really is true. It's yeah. that how much time is wasted just yep. sitting in dumb meetings and yep. creating this corporate structure that doesn't ultimately uh, move the needle forward. And like some of that is needed as you grow a business, but... Um, there's other stuff that just isn't. So Patrick Lencioni has a really great book called Death by Meeting. And uh, it's a it's a borrow from the library. It's not a buy and keep in your shelf. <laughs> but um, he's got some really good insights. And part of that is he talks about good meetings should have conflict. Hmm. You should bring a topic that is that people are going to argue about. Hmm. Not in a nasty way. You need to make it sure it's a fair fight. It's a, but you want that's the purpose of the meeting is to come up with some sort of outcome that's valuable. Otherwise, send an email yeah, uh, or send a report or send a text or whatever it happens to be. And so um, and, and an example of that is at Netflix. Uh, in, when you look at Netflix and the way Netflix operates, Netflix has uh, a culture. And you see this in the um, Reed Hastings book, um, No Rules Rules. But in in that they have a culture and I'm forgetting Aaron Meyer, I think, is the other author. But they have a culture where. You know, if you're three, four levels down from the CEO and you're in a meeting and the CEO is saying something that's not right, that four levels down is authorized to say, I'm sorry, Reed, I think you're incorrect on that. And I'm going to challenge that. Now, in most cases, and frankly, I don't know if either of you have had your butt chewed out for talking up to a level, but I certainly have in my career. And I've been around leaders. I've been around CEOs where I'm number two or I'm working in those roles. And I just hear my CEO say something that's flat out wrong or that it's not fully, is not completely accurate or frankly isn't honest or kind or helpful as we're looking at it. And I, and, and, and when I have spoken up, even privately, I've been chewed out. And that's just not the kind of culture that I think vibrant organizations are. But but is is that so difficult nowadays? Though, is do you see a lot of maybe problems because we we I feel like, and maybe this is my own perspective speaking, but we are just trying at any cost to avoid conflict. There, like conflict re- resolution does not exist, mm-hmm. right? And so conflict is needed to overcome struggles or things that are wrong. But the same thing, like. Where's the balance, though? Because in 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 other places I've been or worked, like I would always, I I, I j- I'm just a no BS guy. Like if I see something that's just not true or not mm-hmm. good or whatever, I always feel like nobody else is speaking up. I guess Keegan will be the butthead that speaks up again, <laughs> and then I get in trouble. And it's well, maybe Keegan shouldn't whatever because he's just always the problem. And I always just feel like the problem. And I'm like, yep, because everybody else is just going along with stuff. That's that's just not okay and wrong, wrong for culture, wrong for work, and just not honesty. But then you kind of get in trouble, or I've yep. seen in my yep. own life, I get in trouble as that person. So where, sure. where where's the balance of that and the importance of, look, leaders need to be better at conflict resolution and companies overall, like, I'm not saying like, my gosh, throw out this, when you say conflict, I'm not saying let's just have infighting. But uh, a <laughs> little MMA, yeah. MMA, you know, yeah. like uni- <laughs> unity is a gr- ultimate is a gr- fighting. Gym. Unity yeah. is great yep. for, for any business or organization. Correct. But just can you talk on the, the importance of like healthy conflict? Yep. And Austin, you're doing a really good job reserving any reaction <laughs> there to Keegan no, and some it, of the. It, <laughs> fun fact, I'm not. I'm not. So yeah, fun fact to the viewers, I'm not. <laughs> this is not my my shining hour where I can say right. something about Austin. Not referring yeah, to him. Yep. Um, you know, the thing is, is I don't know that this this is one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about working with CEOs and other leaders, executive leaders. Because it has to start at the top. And when you're able to have safe conversations and be able to help 
uh, the best CEOs I've ever worked with, the ones I've I've ever connected with, and I'm like, wow, you are amazing. I want to lead like you. They led with vulnerability. They led with honesty. And in our session just just before this podcast, I talked about kindness, and and kindness um, should be contrasted with being nice. And we were in the Midwest. This podcast is being recorded in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and so uh, Midwestern nice, Minnesota nice. That's that's you know that's just a thing here, but niceness is often a selfish attribute. It's actually about me, because it's I don't want to tell you the uncomfortable truth. I don't want to share something that would be awkward for a few minutes, even if it would bless you. And so kindness, though, is I worked with an organization in Denver, Colorado. And um, one of their departments was a food bank. And the gentleman that was the manager of the food bank didn't have computer skills. Well, where do food banks get most of their food? The U.S. government, the USDA. And the USDA requires all reporting to be done through the computer, online. And he didn't have the skills to manage that. That was not kind to leave him in his role. They should have said, do you want to learn computer skills or do you want to find a new job? And can we help you go to the right place? That would have been kindness. Instead, they were nice. And they, res they resented him behind their back. They talked about him behind their back or behind his back. That's not kind. That's nice. And he felt, oh, people like me. And it, the truth was they resented him. And so I think that's where CEOs sometimes because it's polit, you know, there's a lot of politics within business and not from a, you know, red state, blue state type of thing, but, but just people politics that happens within a business, they're afraid to say, cut it out. We need to address that. That needs to go. Or, you know, because they make so much money for the company or they're a superstar or they're whatever, I, I can't hold them accountable. Frankly, if they're causing problems, get them out of there or address it or get them out of there so that the culture of the organization can be truly healthy. And when it is healthy, it's transformative. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think I think it's good for the person that's getting disciplined or whatever. Mm. Like they're being kind to you. Like if your goal is I want to be the best leader and like you said, I'm doing something wrong and Austin's just not telling me because he doesn't want to hurt my feelings. A, it's not kindness. But it's also like, what, like why I shouldn't want that as the employee. Like, don't I want to better myself? I don't. Want, I don't want people laughing behind my back. So I should then be able to take the criticism or the correction. Correct. He's being kind to me, and then the kindness is also like, if I really want to be like the best me or the best version of myself in any job, I gotta be able to wrestle with that or be open to it too. So it is somewhat of a two-way street. You bring up such a great point, Keegan. I mean, it's so valuable. It's not just that they're willing to tell the truth. It's, it's not just the kindness that they will tell other people. It's the vulnerability that they will allow other people to tell them. Mm -hmm. And when the CEO says, you know what? I'm good. Say anything that you think would provide help. help. And, and for me, I'm one of those individuals that I'm hard to offend. Like you have to be intentional about offending me. If you come up and you say, Brent, you did that sucked. That was terrible. Or this could be so much better. Or you botched it. Or, you know, you never should have said this. My pastor um, at my church the other day had, um, he saw a, a social media t uh, post that I did on LinkedIn. And and he's like, you know, you really got to be careful with how you, I, I used an expletive in, in one of my posts. And um, Which one? <laughs> if you really want to know... Uh, I, I attended a, a really cool event called fuck up nights <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a national movement. It's an international movement where entrepreneurs and CEOs, is that the first time that word has showed up on this podcast? No, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, I mean, maybe that one, we've had some other but, ones, but, but it's an international movement where, where entrepreneurs come up on stage and they talk about where they messed up and then how they got over that. And so the whole movement, it's, it's a you know, fun name and it's funny to laugh and all this, but it's deadly serious in being able to more 
normalize failure hmm. because in normalizing failure, you're able to say, all right, you failed. What did you learn? Get up off your feet and keep going now. Use that learning to do something better. And so I had shared that event and my pastor was kind enough to call me and say, you know, you might want to be careful with how you say that. And, and, and whether I agree with him or I disagree with him, I thought it was incredibly kind of him to call me and to risk being able to say that. Yeah. And, and if I'm the type of leader that says, you know, the heck with you, who are you to tell me? I, I'm going to be pushing people away. And that happens way too much in in organizations, especially with the CEO or the top leader, where they can't take all they they, they can dish out the heat, but they can't take it. And I just think that's that's really vibrant when you can. And you're like, all right, bring it. I'm going to be good either way. Hmm. I love that, Brett. Maybe to end us off on on your website, you talk about how self awareness is only half of the recipe. Right? Correct. You can know what to do, but, and most people do know what they should be doing. Like, I know I should eat healthier. I should work out yep. more. I should do these things, but their actions aren't in alignment with it, which is the back half of the recipe mm -hmm. is action. Yep. Um, so what, what limits people from actually taking that action? Yeah. A, a cake, a cake batter that isn't put in the oven is, is incomplete. And so I actually use in my coaching practice, um, I, I call it, uh, the vibrancy air model. And it's based on the acronym of AIR. So it's awareness, intentionality, and resolve. And so with my clients, I'm constantly going through this cycle with them. So first of all is awareness. Okay, what's going on? Oh, that's happened. This is what I want to do. I'm excited about this. This is my new goal. Great. That's your awareness. Then the intentionality is now that you have this awareness, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? What's the strategy? Where are the tactics? What are the resources you have? Going through all of those details. That's the intentional intentional part, being thoughtful about now that we have this awareness, what are we going to do about it? But then there's this last step. And originally I was thinking about, you know, the you know, it was results. And I thought, you know, we focus so much on results that it becomes almost uh, an unhealthy focus. And so I switched it to resolve. And that allows you to when all of a sudden you're going towards this, you have this goal or you have this plan and, you know, there's a, I don't remember what general is that said this, but there's a general that says no battle plan has survived battle itself. Hmm. And so when you're looking at that and you're thinking about that, having the resolve to say, all right, we have a new awareness. We were looking at these outcomes, but we have a new awareness. Given that new awareness, what do we want to do? Do we keep going or do we change trajectories? And either way, it's important to be intentional about that instead of, you know what? We set this goal and by God, we're going to keep going because we set goals and we achieve them at that ABC company. Great. But if it's the wrong goal because the market changed, that's not helpful. Yeah. And so, uh, or it's hard, let's go this way. Well, then you abandon your goal. And that's where I think resolve is so important that you're resolving to be intentional. You're resolving to think through it. And that's that critical element. And that's done by follow-up accountability. And, and frankly, looking at those motivations and saying, why is this so important? You know, Simon Sinek talked about start with why. Mm -hmm. It's so critical. Yeah. I've always, uh, I don't know where this came from, but I've always been told my imperfect plan that I put into action is going to smoke your perfect plan that you never implement. Yes. And, Love that. Uh, it's so true. Like I've always been an action guy my whole life and I've never have made a 20 page business plan and go followed step by step of exactly just start doing and you learn by doing. And um, as long as you're failing forward and moving in the right direction, yep. Over time, you're going to get to where you want to go. That's a good insight. So. Have you ever thought about a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, what he didn't want to say was that quote was me. <laughs> and right. that, Keegan, is why you get into the trouble you get into. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like going around here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keegan is making himself out to be the, the good guy, sharing what's wrong, but... Well, oh, I, just, I, I am think... the good guy. <laughs> there may have been some other reasons you were scolded. Not by me. 
Oh no 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 no! Yeah, I always I always joke like a little bit of discipline in my childhood would have been very kind, right? Because man, did I get <laughs> right. because no discipline growing up, man, life really smacked me. Yep, <laughs> yep, that's true. Well, thanks for being here, Brent. My pleasure. Uh, where can our audience go to find out more about what you do? Awesome. Go to vibrancyunlocked.com. And uh, I have a number of resources there. I also have just launched a new uh, new program for 2024. It's a 90-day sprint where I help CEOs uh, and other executives to identify and free up or reclaim eight hours of their week. And if you reclaim eight hours of your week, that's like adding 17 days to the year's calendar. Hmm. And so there is wasted time, there's squandered time, there is just time that isn't as intentional productive in most CEOs and executives and business owners and and you know doctors that own their own medical practice. There's time that can be leveraged based on what their goals are. And so that product, that service is, is it's a 90 day sprint. We're going to look at this for 90 days. And by the end of the 90 days, we're not only going to identify eight hours, but we're going to create plans and strategies and identify what are the resolve systems in order to get you there. So go to vibrancyunlock.com and that's a great place to, to learn more. Hey everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We sincerely hope that you learned something today. And as always, we appreciate your support and hope you can all find a way this week to pay it forward.